Do you feel like low energy, brain fog, or bloating prevent you from accomplishing your daily goals? Genuine Health's foundational products, Greens Plus, Probiotics, and Omegas can help you feel your best mentally and physically so you can get more things done. When you feel great, it's easier to get things done. Whether you need more energy from increased greens, brain and focus support from omegas, or a probiotic to keep your digestion, immunity, and gut happy, look to GenuineHealth.com to give your body what it needs so you can do more every day and feel great while doing it. Visit GenuineHealth.com to learn more because done does feel good. Hi, I'm Andrea Donsky, founder of NaturallySavvy.com and co-host of our Naturally Savvy podcast. And I am Lisa Davis, MPH health educator, co-host of Naturally Savvy and author of the book, Cleaning Eating Dirty Sex Memoir Cookbook Healthy Lifestyle Guide. At Naturally Savvy, we are here to help you make healthier lifestyle choices. So we are so honored that you are tuning in to listen to our podcast on a weekly basis. And we are here to engage you, have fun, and help you live your healthiest lifestyle. Now, on to the show. Naturally Savvy Podcast is sponsored by Morphus for Menopause. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy Radio. The last time I was in an ICU was back in 1996. My mother had just passed away, and now my beloved grandfather was very, very ill. He had had a successful heart surgery, and then they discovered that he had an ulcer that burst. And I think it was the stress of losing my mother, who was his only child. And it was just heartbreaking. He was connected to all these lines and tubes and machines. And sadly, it's the last time I ever saw him. Luckily, I have years and a lifetime other than that of memories of him. I just went one time because he died very, like, I think he died later that day. I don't know if he knew if I was there. I didn't have to interact with the staff. I didn't have to know what was going on. But so many people do, especially in these times. So I am very glad to have on the program the fantastic Laura Goitine, MD. Laura Goitine, MD, is a Harvard-trained physician specializing in intensive care and lung medicine. She founded a clinician-directed quality improvement program at a Santa Fe, New Mexico hospital and is president-elect of the medical staff. Her professional interests include quality improvement in healthcare, end-of-life care, the training of new doctors, physician burnout, and improving communication with patients and families. She is an editorial board member and frequent writer for the medical journal JAMA Internal Medicine and also writes in the lay press, including the New York Review of Books. Her book that we're talking about today is the ICU Guide for Families Understanding Intensive Care and How You Can Support Your Loved One. Laura Goitine, MD. Welcome to Naturally Savvy. It's so nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to say how sorry I am to hear about your experience with your family members. Thank you. Was your mother also in the ICU? No, my mother had ovarian cancer and she had hospice for the last month or two. So she passed at home. Okay. So this was my first time, really. I had, I guess I'm lucky. I've never been to the ICU before. And it was, it was really hard. And like I mentioned, I only had to go the one time, mm-hmm. the one visit. And but there are people who really have to learn how to navigate. And that's what you that what you're doing. You wrote the ICU guide for yeah. families, understanding intensive care and how you can support your loved one. When did you first want to address this topic, Dr. Goitin? I've been wanting to write this book for 15 years. Um, I've just always felt a tremendous amount of sympathy for the family members of ICU patients. They are not only terrified for their loved ones, 
But as you point out, they're really thrust into a completely alien and intimidating world. And they're really in desperate need of explanations. Docs and nurses want very badly to give those explanations, but they're so busy um, that sometimes they just don't have the time to do a subject justice in the amount of detail that that families really want. Um, so I wanted to write this book because I realized I had a sort of repertoire of explanations I gave over and over and over again, time permitting. And I thought, you know, maybe it would help to kind of write them down. Um, the other thing I wanted to try to um, help families with was this sense of overwhelming powerlessness and helplessness, just being off on the periphery suddenly with your loved ones in the hands of strangers. You feel like you're supposed to be watching for things or doing things, but you, you just don't know what those are. Um, and, but families really can take a very central role um, in making their loved ones care better. Um, and I feel like they need that sense of agency. They need to know that they've done that. So I also wrote this book with a very concrete goal of trying to give families very practical suggestions for how they can take a role, how they can help um, as they go through an ICU stay. So this is really, to answer your question, it's been something I've had in my mind for a very long time. And um, I had a sort of a transition in career and I was spending some time home with my kids um, when uh, doing online school with COVID. And I thought, now's the time. No, it's so good that you did, because I think a lot of people aren't really sure what to do. They might feel like they're bothering the doctors and nurses too much. And maybe some are. I don't know. You can <laughs> speak to that. And some people are just completely like, I don't want to get in the way at all. And then they really don't know what's going on. What? How do you find that happy medium? I think that's a, a really common response. It Families feel very dependent on the ICU staff. And they really don't want to irritate anybody. They want the ICU staff to like them. They feel like maybe that will help them or their loved one to get better care. Um, I will say that it should not, and in most cases, is not important whether the doctors and nurses like you. Um, they are committed to providing the best care for all of their patients and that's sort of a very central code of ethics that they have. Um, so, you know, on a battlefield, the doctor will take care of the enemy wounded or, you know, often we take care of patients who's, who have um, come to the situation there and because of their own behaviors. Doctors try to put that aside um, and take the best care they can of everyone. So first of all, I'll say it doesn't really matter if the doctors like you. That's the first that's the first point that I would make. And family members get irritated with each other and worried that they are negatively affecting their family members' care. These are small details. The big picture is what's happening with the family member. And that's what your doctors and nurses have their eye on. And that's what you should have your eye on too. So that's the first thing I'll say. Um, I think it should be everyone's expectation that they have good communication with the ICU team. 
That's important. You have important information to bring to bear. Um, your loved one's past medical history, their medications that they take at home, their values and desires, thinking about um, end of life. Um, and so doctors and nurses need to be talking to you, and they need to be giving you the explanations and the understanding that you need. Docs and nurses know this very well. And as I said earlier, they want to be giving you those explanations and speaking with you. It gets challenging, though, right? I and bet. especially right now with um, COVID, when doctors and nurses are so overwhelmed, and um, the you know the the visitation policies put an extra barrier in place. Um, but even in the best of times, communication is challenging because schedules are so busy and so variable. It's hard to predict. It's hard to make a set appointment. Um, so what I always suggest to families is ask your doctor. It's particularly an issue with the doctors because the nurses tend to be at the bedside um, throughout the day. Ask your doctor, when is the best general time for you? Are you usually best able to talk in the afternoon, say, or the evenings? And then try to be available and flexible during that time period. So instead of saying, oh, could I have an appointment at 2 p.m. with you? Um, you know, which the doc might find very hard to make, make that appointment. Um, then say, I'll be in the waiting room or at the bedside or available by phone between 2 and 5 p.m. I would really appreciate the chance to talk to you sometime in then. Yeah. See, that's so helpful. I was, I was thinking that, like, when do you know how to, when to communicate, when you don't want to seem like a bother, right? And yeah. you know, especially with COVID, I mean, everyone is stretched so thin. Yeah. So I think you're even more careful. But people are in the ICU for a lot of different reasons, right? And Absolutely. what are what are some of them? There are a lot of different um, sort of primary illnesses uh, or or problems that bring people into the ICU. And I mean, there's too many to name, but some common ones are, you know, infections like pneumonia, um, a severe complicated appendicitis could bring you to the ICU. That's another kind of infection. Um, trauma from a car accident or, or another accident. Um, you know, th there's all sorts of different illnesses that can bring you into the ICU. And that was beyond the scope of what I wanted to write about. I didn't set out to explain all the IC, all the illnesses that could bring you to the ICU, but there are several common um, uh, secondary illnesses that show up again and again in critical care. So one of those is acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS it's called, and that's a sort of widespread inflammation and injury to the lungs. And that can happen as a result of many severe illnesses. So it can happen because of pneumonia, which sort of makes sense um, because of infection in your lung. And it can happen because of COVID pneumonia, for sure. Um, but it can also happen because of the appendicitis or pancreatitis or trauma. So that's an example of sort of a common final pathway um, illness that takes place in the ICU. And there are several others. And those actually become sort of the dominant focus of your doctors is working on um, helping you through those 
those secondary consequences at the same time that the primary illness, the, the original problem is being addressed. And I do in my book um, explain those sort of secondary pathways, which many ICU patients are likely to experience. You know, I think what's so difficult as well, if you're looking at the end of life, and in your book, you talk about the tyranny of hope when making end of life decisions for patients. Can you expand on that and what that means? Absolutely. So um, if a patient has been in the ICU a long time on life support and say they're not getting much better, and the doctors are estimating small chances of recovery, say 3%, You know, first I would caution that we're notoriously not that good at making predictions in this way. But say that that is sort of the the overwhelming feeling, that that's the most likely outcome. Um, I think most families don't see a reason not to take that small chance. And they really fixate on those very small hopes. And that's what they think about day to day. And they think, well, my family member is a fighter and maybe they'll beat the odds. And they kind of focus on those hopes. And I think for some patients, that's completely appropriate. Um, For some patients, um, you know, say you have a very young mother who has several children and maybe one has a learning disability and needs her support. and, And just knowing her personality, you know, she would fight no matter what the costs. You know, if that's a person for whom the small hopes approach makes a lot of sense. But just by definition, statistically, if if everybody's focusing on small hopes, that means a lot of people go through a very long ICU battle and and don't make it. Um, and there are real costs to that, costs to everyone. I think cost certainly to the family member who's going through a long battle and on some level suffering, um, at least existentially. And then the family, um, you know, can be just beaten down and exhausted by the prolonged grief and hope of the thing. And that's sort of what I call the tyranny of hope. And not that that's not appropriate for some patients. I don't think it's appropriate for all patients. Take, say you have an elderly man who's had a rich career, and I'm actually thinking about a family member of mine now, um, and he's been quite, he's very elderly, he's been quite clear that he's ready, that he, he loves his life, he's enjoyed it, but he's ready to go. For such a person, taking that that long shot approach might not make the most sense. Instead, it might make more sense to think, what is most likely for this person? And the most likely thing is that he goes through a long struggle and doesn't make it or comes out on the other end, not the happy person that he was. Um, And so, you know, then in that situation, it makes sense to take a different approach and it has to be individualized based on who that person is And you as the closest family member are the person to share that with your ICU team and help to make those very difficult decisions. You know, I I realized when I said my grandfather passed away that 
that wasn't the case. Well, the case was that he was on machines, but his advanced directive, if I have the name right, mm-hmm. yeah. said no. Or if I'm on it a certain amount of time, I don't know. But we respected his wishes. Yeah. It'd be so nice, wouldn't it, if people would do that, and yes. get their affairs in order? It brings tremendous comfort to your family to have that backup for that kind of very difficult decision. And unfortunately, a lot of families, after making these sorts of decisions, when they go home, they have basically post-traumatic stress disorder and sometimes anxiety and depression. So it is very tough on families and an advanced directive helps a lot. Um, I think one of the ways that an advanced directive most helps is prompting a conversation with your family about what is most important to you. Um, and you can be surprised. I, even I have, I delayed these conversations with some of my family members way too long. And when I finally had them, I was surprised and I probably would act differently um, oh, on their behalf. So, I do think having those conversations ahead of time and and advanced directives are very helpful. Unfortunately, they're not always in place. And I think family members feel these decisions as a, a terrible responsibility. But I think what people need to know is that these aren't monstrous decisions. These are loving and courageous decisions and they're necessary. They're made all the time. So we we are able to support people in a way where they're technically alive long past the point where it makes any sense for them. So now, in most cases, when someone dies in the ICU, it's because people have come to that decision with their ICU team that enough is enough and it's time to let the person go. Um, so that is that is um, the most common way to die in the ICU. So patients' families shouldn't feel that this is that this is monstrous. This is something they're called to do, and and as I said, it it can be a very loving and selfless thing. Is there an, a, an amount of time where they're like, okay, this person has a one percent chance, and it's been five months? Like we need to we need you need to make a decision, or is it just open ended? It does vary very much situation to situation in terms of what the medical illness is, how certain the prognosis is, um, the family members' um, values, and um, you know how hard they might want to fight, and what and how the family weighs in. So these things do just vary a lot and need to be taken on an individual basis. For some people, um, it makes you know, no sense to continue care past the initial few hours in the ICU if if things are looking dismal enough and they have the right life circumstance. Others will be in the ICU for months. Um, and I have a, a, a fairly young patient who had a ruptured um, aorta, basically, who survived and um, was in the ICU, I believe, for three and a half months, he's still sending me postcards when he's playing golf. So, you know, it just is a very variable situation um, and it has to be dealt with on an individual basis. These are very nuanced, difficult conversations and they require 
the partnership of the doctors and nurses and um, and the family. I bet. Now, are there people who have certain religious ideology where they're like, can't can't do it? Absolutely. Religion is a very important um, factor for many patients. For others, it's it's not. So that's one of the sort of individual characteristics that need to be uh, taken into account in these conversations. I wanted to address what you had sort of touched on, which is the limited resources. And that's sort of newly a problem uh, with with COVID. And now, thank goodness, with Omicron, we're starting to see cases and hospitalizations come down, but deaths in the ICUs are still increasing because there's a delay between the initial cases and deaths. So we're still seeing that increase and a heavy, heavy burden on families and on the healthcare system. Uh, Right now, there are about 24,000 patients with COVID in the ICUs. And just doing a little number crunching, to me, I think the capacity of ICUs is about 50% higher than it normally is. And at the same time, there are many fewer staff. A lot of staff have left their practices over the last couple of years because it's been just so difficult. Um, And a lot of them are sick. So if you take a 50% increase in capacity and a, you know, 20% or more decrease in your staffing, that's, that's a problem. Um, and so, yeah, resources right now are, are very tight. And I, unfortunately, that's affecting care, not only for patients with COVID, but for all of us. I think we'll be unraveling the effects on, on the quality of care and our health outcomes for a long time to follow this pandemic. Jumping into your book a little more, The ICU Guide for Families, Understanding Intensive Care and How You Can Support Your Loved One. I love that you break it into the first 24 hours, the first two weeks, I mean, excuse me, the first three days, the first two weeks, common procedures. It's really great. And then after the first two weeks, if you can touch on one particular area within the first 24 hours, and then the first three days, first two weeks? The issues are really very different for those time periods. And that's why I divided it up in that way. The The first day, the first 24 hours is a time of shock for most family members. It's also a time where they have to make a series of decisions, usually about a, a small set of procedures um, and giving consent for those procedures and making decisions about whether the patient should be what's called full code, which means that they would have their heart restarted and be, and be put on life support if need be. So there are a lot of sort of immediate decisions that have to be made in a state of complete shock and disorientation. So the first part of my book is really designed to help patients practically to make those decisions, those initial decisions, and also to give them a beginning orientation to their environment. A lot of that time is dominated by waiting. So family members come to the hospital, they're told to sit in a waiting room, and they wait and wait. And, um, you know, I I always felt like, gosh, I have to get to the family as soon as I can because they're dying out there wondering what's going on. And because it, if you can get to families quickly, 
you can establish a really good working relationship. Oh, that's the more good. time. Yeah. If a lot of time goes by before you can get there, you'll often find family members really distrustful and angry and upset, and which makes perfect sense. So, what I would just urge families to do in that first twenty-four hours is understand you're waiting because that ICU team is very busy trying to stabilize your loved one, trying to get the monitoring and the initial treatments in place necessary to keep them out of danger. And once that's taken care of, they will come talk to you. Um, so re to resist the urge to sit in the waiting room getting furious <laughs> because they will try to get there as soon as possible. So that's the sort of thing I cover in the first 24 hours. And also trying to, at the end of the that, that section, I remind people, you probably haven't eaten or gone to the bathroom or slept. This is a marathon, uh, not, not a sprint. So you need to take care of yourself. So that's sort of the orientation of the first 24 hours. First three days is a very, um, a time when you need to get more oriented to the equipment and the place and the people around you. So that's what I try to introduce there. And it's also a very important time in that if people start to turn the corner in response to treatment in that time, they're likely to do well. So it's an important prognostic time period um, for, for patients. Um, the first couple of weeks, I sort of try to get into more of the nuances of the environment, the culture, how to interact with your team. Um, you're kind of settling in and living there. Uh, and then after the first two weeks, a lot of bigger picture issues come into play for many families, not all, but many families, that's when they start to think, okay, is this in, in line with my loved one's wishes? And they start thinking about, um, you know, what's important to that person in terms of how they live and how they die and making some, some of those difficult decisions. So they're very different issues at, at different times. And I, I felt like it made sense to divide them up in that way. Oh, it does. And also, you know, the goal was to kind of walk with a family member chronologically through an admission from beginning to end, um, kind of talking about issues as they're likely to arise. Yeah, I think it makes so much sense, especially because there's a lot of shock involved. I would imagine that a lot of these things, they're sudden onset, whether it's an accident, a stroke, a heart attack. A lot of times it's really a shock. Um, a lot of times it's out of the blue and sudden, like, for example, with a car accident. Um, sometimes it's a lot of the time it's on the background of a chronic disease that's been sort of sputtering along, but then takes a really unexpected, uh, sudden downturn. And I think a lot of people, um, family members in that first shocking 24 hours spend a lot of time beating themselves up. Like if I'd noticed, if I'd got them to the doctor, if I'd been more careful about his blood sugars or, you know, what, what it, whatever it is. And part of what I talk about in that section of the book is, listen, this is not the time to beat yourself up. You have got to be kind to yourself so that you can be there for them because you have a big job to do right now. Um, so yeah, you absolutely do. I love as well in the book, you have common procedures for ICU patients, which is so helpful because I think we've all heard of intubation. We've heard of blood transfusions, but uh, Thor, I'm not good at pronouncing things, Thoracentesis and Thoracentesis. 
sores and yeah. teeth and there's paracentesis and then there's pure cutaneous gallbladder drainage and yeah. cardiac catheterization. And it just helps because then if you're like, oh, we need to do a hemodialysis, you're like, oh, okay. And oh, I have my, I have doc, the wonderful book by Dr. Laura Goitian. Let me just, <laughs> you know, like really, because these can be, you're already overwhelmed. You're already sad. You're already scared. And maybe the doctor or nurse doesn't have time to sit and explain the procedure. It's nice for you to have that information. Absolutely. And um, you're going to be giving consent for many of those pr- procedures, assuming that your family member isn't able to give consent, him or herself. Um, and, you know, the consent process is important. I think a lot of people think, well, how do I know? I mean, the doctor is the one who knows the risks and the benefits and how could I possibly weigh those things? And and that's true to a large extent. You are in a position where you need to trust your doctor. But I think, so I almost think that the major value in a good conversation about inform, about consenting is to prompt some reflection on the part of that doctor to really get them to talk through what are the risks, what would the other options be, how strongly do they feel about it, is it in something that they would do for their family member, is it in keeping with your family member's long-term goals. And to have those sorts of conversations, it helps to know a little bit about the procedure. You're not going to be able to make really great medical decisions. And if you try, you're going to exhaust yourself. But if you know enough, it sets you up in a position where you can ask the right questions and have a conversation that um, that is meaningful. Yeah, I want to talk about in the seventh part of your book, you have dying in the in the ICU. And I'm, I'm curious about palliative care. Well, palliative care is a specialty of medicine um, that focuses on um, relieving pain and discomfort and often is involved in um, um, in discussing um, approaches to end of life and the best approach for you and how to do that in a way that allows you to pass comfortably in accordance with your wishes. So um, I think it's, it's a mistake to think of palliative care as only about pulling the plug. Um, palliative care is also consulted for things like intractable pain or um, intractable itchings, you know, certain symptoms that accompany severe illness. So if, if uh, your ICU team asks the palliative care service to come see you, don't panic. <laughs> they could be there for many, many reasons and can help in many, many ways. But often they are involved um, in end-of-life care and specialize in doing that well. We, we now have the ability to help patients to pass in such a way that they are comfortable, not short of breath. I think that's something a lot of families worry about and are afraid to ask about when they're ta- thinking about withdrawing care but it can be done in a way um, that um, makes for a, a peaceful death. Um, and palliative care is, uh, is expert in that, in that process. So palliative care plays a, a large role in the ICU for many patients, not just those who are dying. All right. You know, I, I also love that you include withdrawing life support, what to expect, because on TV, you know, you yeah. withdraw the life support and then the person's gone. But yeah. 
After smiling gently. <laughs> yes. So what really happens? Yeah. Um, so I think that it helps a lot to know what to expect. Some of the things that patients do um, at the time that they're passing away um, can be very alarming um, and make people panic and think that perhaps the person is uncomfortable. So just as an example, as the um, muscles in the airway around your neck relax, um, you can hear sort of gurgling sounds um, and breathing patterns may become slow and irregular. This is a natural part of dying. It doesn't necessarily reflect discomfort. Um, so I think being aware of these things helps helps family members to understand what to expect. That won't be true of all families. I hesitated before writing that section because I get pretty pretty detailed, and I think for some readers it may be disturbing. It's probably not something to read if you're not um, about to withdraw care or really anticipating that your family member will pass away imminently, but. For me, I would want to know what to expect um, and what to interpret as a sign of um, discomfort and what to recognize as a normal part of the dying process. So I, I do give a pretty detailed description of what you can expect during that time. Yeah, I mean, when my husband's mother was dying and I wasn't there, I had to be home with our daughter. Uh, she was four at the time. Yeah, he was talking about that. It's kind of it's like jarring, you know, the sounds that they make and you're wondering yeah. well, what's going on. And yeah. so I think it's so good to know that. Are there people who are able to, by the way, if, if they're able to be transferred to go home, if that's where they want to pass? Absolutely. Or to a hospice facility. But some patients are, are just so sick that it's it's really not possible to, to move them out of the ICU. Um, and I think you know, nobody wants wants to die in an ICU if, when they're planning ahead. Everybody says, I think so. I want to die at home surrounded by my loved ones. And, but I will say that I've seen many people who would have said that really not want to go home or family members because they recognize how much responsibility that is and they're frightened. Um, and they also, you know, the they they might not have the skills or the ability to do all the caretaking that's necessary. Um, if if your family member is dying in the ICU, that's not ideal, but at least you can be sure that that person will be kept comfortable, and you can focus on that person and on your goodbyes while other people take care of that person and make the decisions, the moment-to-moment -moment decisions that have to be made. And you can concentrate on making it as in accordance with their values and their personality um, as you can. You can bring in items from home. You can bring in music. You can bring in photos. You can take some time to talk to your loved one um, and tell them what you need to tell them. So it, I won't say it's it's ideal, but I've seen some very beautiful deaths in the oh. ICU. Oh, that's nice to know. 
And you talk about that in the book as well, is you talk about a comfortable death in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very important to um, make sure the patient is absolutely comfortable. There's um, sometimes in some settings, some hesitation to give enough pain control because that does suppress your breathing a little bit and it and also your blood pressure and technically may lead to a faster um, dying. But once you know a patient is dying, really the focus needs to be on making it as comfortable as possible. And so there is absolutely no reason to have anyone experiencing discomfort um, during their death. So a comfortable death is a very important aspect. Um, Family closeness is an important aspect. um, And that was what was so heartbreaking about the pandemic, especially early, was that some people weren't able to visit their loved ones when they were passing away. ICUs are really loosening those restrictions, which I think is a very good, uh, very good thing. Um, so yeah, it's possible to have a, a comfortable and, and lovely, um, death in the, in the ICU, even in the ICU. Oh, that's good. I like too, that you have COVID-19 specific issues because again, it kind of seems like it just, it turned everything, everything upside down. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, as I said, I wrote this during the beginning of the pandemic and I realized I needed a full section of the book devoted to COVID because it is such a game changer, um, both in terms of uh, the infectiousness of the huge volumes we're seeing and the overwhelming of, of healthcare workers and healthcare resources. Um, and also uh, in terms of the all of the visitation policies, which have so affected family members' ability to be present for their loved ones and to communicate with the ICU team. So it, it, it has really changed everything. I think what's sort of interesting is that the biggest changes that COVID have brought to bear have to do with those things, with public health issues and, and limited resources. The illness itself follows many of those common pathways that, that we were talking about. For example, acute respiratory distress syndrome. So the challenge for ICUs has been less trying to figure out how to do things differently for COVID, but trying to figure out how to do things the same for COVID, um, to give patients with COVID the same kind of, you know, gold standard ICU care that we give other patients with all of these um, problems with resources and um, infection control measures, et cetera. So, but the, the common final pathways of the disease look very much like other very severe critical illness. Yeah, when you were talking about pulmonary issues, that's what I thought of. I immediately mm-hmm. thought of, of COVID as well. Well, this has been amazing. Again, the book is the ICU Guide for Families, Understanding Intensive Care and How You Can Support Your Loved One. Dr. Goitin, was there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to add, of course, other than how to get your fantastic book? <laughs> no, I think we've really had a nice conversation yeah, and I, I enjoyed it so much, Lisa. So thank you for having me on. Well, how do, do you have a website? Um, I do. It's being being built. So it's, it is available. It's a little bit of a work in progress, but it's uh, www.medicalexplainer.com. 
Oh, I love that title. That's great. <laughs> that name. That is great. Well, thank you so much again. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Do you feel like low energy, brain fog, or bloating prevent you from accomplishing your daily goals? Genuine Health Foundational Products, Greens Plus, Probiotics, and Omegas can help you feel your best mentally and physically so you can get more things done. When you feel great, it's easier to get things done. Whether you need more energy from increased greens, brain and focus support from omegas, or a probiotic to keep your digestion, immunity, and gut happy, look to GenuineHealth.com to give your body what it needs so you can do more every day and feel great while doing it. Visit GenuineHealth.com to learn more because done does feel good. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.